All right. We are now kind of midway already through our series on I Am His Story. Remember back a couple weeks ago as I led into this series, started with the truth, right? The biological makeup that our brains, by God, were created for story. We remember 20 times more facts and details when they are couched in story. When we hear a story from someone or share a story, when we are engaged in a story on Netflix or at the movie theater, chemicals are being released in our brain for being engaged in story, whether it's cortisol, oxytocin, or dopamine. And so these brains that we have that Jesus has given us, our whole bodies just being created for story, the questions we've put before you as we work through this series are how do you connect with the stories that you hear? Not just in the Bible, but even our friends from St. Peter who are sharing their stories in person. Secondly, how have you seen God's faithfulness at work in your story? You have a story as part of God's larger story. And then thirdly, and this is the big one, how can God use your story as a platform for his glory? There's no greater platform. As well as to grow you spiritually or even encourage someone else who might connect or be going through a similar kind of struggle. As you think about those, today we're going to go to Luke chapter 8 to a very big true story of transformation. You see that we're in the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has just calmed a storm as the disciples are coming across. And when they step out of the boat on the southwest shore, there you can see what the bank looks like there on the right, a very interesting man meets Jesus. And Luke draws a sharp, sharp distinction between this man before he encounters Jesus and his new life after his encounter with Jesus. He tells us before this encounter with Jesus that he actually has a legion of demons in him. A Roman legion could have 6,000 foot soldiers. So this man is under complete submission of demonic authority. As part of that, Luke tells us that for a considerable time, his only clothing is his naked skin. His home is among tombs because the village has deemed he is not safe to be there. And so he lives out alone, confined to the graveyard, naked. And because he is so unsafe, they have even bound his hands with chains and his feet with shackles and kept him under a guard. That's how oppressed this man is. And sometimes he is under such demonic influence. Luke says the demons break those chains and shackles, the physical strength, and send him fleeing out into the wilderness. What an absolute miserable existence. And so this is the man who comes to Jesus when they step out of that boat on that southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But that day and that encounter, Jesus' word and his authority 
work a remarkable victory in this man's life and in the kingdom of God, driving back the reign of evil. After Jesus encounters this man and speaks even with the demons, we're told that the demons beg Jesus to go into a herd of swine feeding on the hillside. Mark tells us there are 2,000 pigs in that herd. The demons ask to go there. It's a fitting host, isn't it? Thousands of pigs for thousands of demons. The unclean fit for the unclean. And Jesus gives permission. They immediately leave the man, go into the pigs. The pigs run down that bank and into the lake of Galilee and are drowned. That's the first instance of deviled ham in the Bible. Then Luke tells us that this man, who once had thousands of demons, is completely liberated. And look at the transformation. For the first time in months, even years, he is clothed. And then it pictures this man sitting at Jesus' feet. That's not just faith in Jesus. That's the posture of a disciple, a follower. Later in Luke's gospel, remember Martha and Mary? It is Mary who was also pictured sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he's no longer mad and uncontrollable. But he, he is in his complete and sound mind, full of peace. And then your English Bible probably says he was healed. And that's okay. But there's a much deeper spiritual reality here. The Greek word there that Luke uses is actually saved. This man is saved. Because when Jesus saves, it's complete in body and mind and in our soul. And so this incredible contrast of before Jesus and after Jesus, Luke gives us a very significant biblical truth here. Here is one of the big, big truths of this account. This pagan, this Gentile, this man possessed with demons is a clear declaration that no human being, no matter what they look like on the outside or how long they might have been in that condition, no human being is ever too messy, too bound, or too unclean for Jesus Christ to save and transform. No one. And every single one of us here in this room now is evidence of that gospel truth ourselves. No one is ever beyond Jesus' saving and transformation. As we can imagine, this man who's just been given a completely new life and eternity begs Jesus to go with him, right? He loves sitting at his feet. He wants to do that. But rather than rejecting this man's desire to be with Jesus, Jesus refocuses him as his disciple. And look at these words of Jesus to this now saved man. Return to your home. Imagine the feeling of those words. For who knows how long he's been among graves. 
Jesus now says, go home. Go home. And then Jesus gives him one more command. Jesus says, and literally describe in detail how much God has done for you. Don't just go give a man's account, right? It was good. In our household, we would say, give the mother-in-law version, the Nancy version. Give every single detail of what God has done for you. And look at his response to his new teacher. We're told the man goes away, proclaims throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. He doesn't just recount the narrative, but he fervently proclaims the difference that Jesus has made in his story. We are now pleased at St. Peter to welcome someone from our community who's going to do the same thing. He's going to come up here and share just how much Jesus has done for his story. So Mike McQuaid, would you please come forward? And uh, we probably have about 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, okay. to hear your story and how Jesus really worked through some hard, hard circumstances to draw you closer. Well, thank you, Pastor Roselle. Well, it's a very blessing to me to be here today with everybody. And a little bit about my background is I was a student here at St. Peter from kindergarten through eighth grade. So I grew up in a Christian household and uh, I've been a follower of Jesus my entire life. But that doesn't mean that I was always at the same level of faith that I am now. I really believe that God allowed the trial in my life to occur so that I would come closer to him and you know, change from a posture of independence to dependence. And when I graduated from St. Peter and went to high school, I came to church with my parents, but I wasn't reading the Bible every day like I was when I was a student here. When I went to college, I never went to church, and I, I don't think I really read the Bible very much either. In my mind, I didn't need to. But what I didn't realize what was happening is that my faith was becoming weaker and weaker, and I was becoming more and more dependent on myself and less and less trusting and dependent on God. And that, I think, um, is where God worked a miracle in my life. And so things seemed to be going perfectly. And I'd gone to college, I graduated, I went to graduate school, I was hired into a dream job in Cincinnati, I'd met my fiance, who's now my wife, we were going to get married in the summer of 1998, <clears throat> we were going to move to Cincinnati, buy a home there, and everything was going according to plan. And then, just about three days before we were going to fly to Cincinnati and buy a house, I, you know, my wife noticed, and my wife is a... Um, uh, nurse at the time, she's a nurse practitioner now, she noticed that I was breathing differently when I would go up and down stairs. And what I noticed was if I took a really deep breath, I'd feel a pinching in my back and a little bit of a uh, stabbing pain. And so Erica listened to my lungs, and she said that I had diminished breath sounds coming out of my right side. And you know, I wasn't sure what that was all about, but I wasn't concerned. And she said that I should get to a doctor and get an x-ray for this. Now, we're supposed to fly to Cincinnati in a couple days. And all I'm thinking is, we've got so much to do, I don't have time to go see a doctor. But she insisted. And so I went, I had a chest x-ray, and I don't know too much about x-rays, but they told me that in a normal 
chest X-ray, you see two black ovals for your lungs. But my X-ray was different. My X-ray showed a black oval and a sliver. And they told me that it looks like my lung is collapsed. And all I'm thinking is, well, they have to reinflate this lung quickly because we need to you know, get on with life. And they said, well, that, that's not how it works. They said with any abnormal chest X-ray, they do a more detailed CAT scan to see what really is happening. Now, backing up a little bit in the story is that when my wife and I became engaged, we weren't sure where we were gonna, we were gonna get married. Now, I'd let my membership here lapse. Again, I was under the impression that I could do religion on my own and be just fine. But God called us back and we came to St. Peter shortly after we were engaged for Christmas. And we walked into the, the um, synagogue or the um, uh, building over there and the first thing that came to my mind and hers was, we have to get married here. We have to get married here at St. Peter. This is part of my life. This was the church I used to belong to. And I was able to reinstate my membership right away. But Erica, because she wasn't a Lutheran and had not been a member of a Lutheran church, was going to go through adult information courses. And I thought, well, I'll go with her. And what a great thing that God did for us. You know, and it seems so subtle, but God was bringing me back and you know, reteaching me things that I'd forgotten and strengthened my faith in ways that I didn't know so that we could be prepared to be, both be members of St. Peter and be married there in the summer of 1998. So when I, now fast forward back to the part of the story where we had the CAT scan. I had the CAT scan and they said there was a mass in your chest. It's about the size of a softball and that's what's collapsing your lung. And the first thing that came across my mind was a mass. Do you mean cancer? And they said, well, they don't know yet. They can't tell without a biopsy, but I, I knew it was something very serious. So when we left Northwest Community Hospital, I said, it was a Wednesday night. I said, Eric, let's go to St. Peter. Let's see if anyone's there. So we came in and we looked in the church and there was Pastor Ranke at the front of the church. I think it was probably teaching a Bible class. And he looked at I saw me and I think he knew right away that something was wrong. And he came out, we told him what was going on, we prayed, and I got a lot of peace from that. And I, looking back, 2020 hindsight, God was bringing me back to church and back to him to prepare me for this trial. So it turns out that indeed, I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, an aggressive form of malignant cancer, but my odds were very good of uh, surviving. So my odds were 90% chance of cure, uh, I went through an aggressive chemotherapy treatment over five months. Everything seemed to be fine. There was no sign of cancer five months later. During this time, God gave me great peace that I was going to be okay. And about one month after I got the clean bill of health, my elbow started to hurt. And eventually what that turned into is a biopsy on my arm. And I was thinking maybe I have some type of disease that's rare because I had a low immune system from all the chemotherapy. Maybe I have a weird injury because I'm frail from all the treatments I've gone through. And they did a biopsy in my arm. And because of my uh, weakened condition at that time from all the chemo, I was in the hospital for the biopsy. And I remember going into a conference with my wife next to me, my mother and father across from me, and my three oncologists in the room. And what they told me shocked me. They said, your cancer has returned. It's come back in your elbow and you have three choices. Your first option is to do nothing, in which case you'll die within three months. Your second option is to treat it with really aggressive chemotherapy, 
and we may be able to keep you alive anywhere from six to 12 months, but you'll be very ill for at least three out of four weeks, potentially four out of four weeks. And your third option is a bone marrow transplant. That'll give you a 20% chance of living a year. There's a 50% chance you're gonna die within two weeks from the transplant rejecting you. Oh, and by the way, it's not an option right now because we don't have a donor for you. you know, but uh, so what do you wanna do? So I'm sitting there with my family, the people that I love most in the world, and realizing that I'm dying quickly. And my mom's across from me, and my wife is next to me, and I'm thinking, don't cry. Just don't cry, hold it in, and say something brave. And all I could say that could come was, does it hurt to die? And my wife goes, Mike, I will not let you suffer. I won't let you suffer through this. And we had to make a decision of what we were gonna do. And so what we decided to do was go for the option with the real aggressive chemotherapy, try to stay long, alive as long as possible to maybe they would find a donor for me. And that uh, re-diagnosis was absolutely devastating. And I never lost faith, but I was so numb, I couldn't, I can't even describe the despair and the lack of existence, I couldn't think, I couldn't pray, I couldn't, I, it was a dark, dark void. And my good friend Jeff Small, who got, uh, is another person, God brought into my life just at the right time. We would always pray together, his wife and I and my wife, we would always pray together. And two days after I was re-diagnosed, we went to Lou Malnati's in Buffalo Grove, a lot of you have probably been there. And Friday night, festive atmosphere, we dropped the, our wives off at the door, it was a freezing cold night, we go to the park and Jeff says, hey, do you wanna pray? Which we always did together. And I said, oh, Jeff, I've got nothing. I can't do anything, I can't, I can't even do that. And I said, Jeff, you know, for the first time, I don't know if I have the strength or maybe even the desire to fight this. And Jeff says a prayer, he says, God, please give Mike his will to live back. Simple prayer. So we go into Lou Malnati's, everyone's having a great time, I'm in a different world. Half hour after saying that prayer, all of a sudden, a warmth comes over me. And this feeling that, wow, I've had a great life. And I'm married to a wonderful woman, I've got great friends, and God's provided me so much in my life at every stage. And I'm not gonna die today, I could probably have at least 30 more days. I'm probably going to have another 180 days. But whether it's 30 or 180, I'm going to live those days. And I'm going to enjoy those days. And let me tell you, that is not my personality. I am not a person who rolls with the punches. But that peace that I had and still have came from God and really strengthened me. Now, I was at peace with where I was going. I was at peace with the fact that I may live or I may die but I knew I was going to heaven and that God was gonna take care of me. But I still had this grief and this weight. And when I thought about it, I thought about why I felt, still felt this, this, this sadness. I realized I'm gonna die and my wife is going to be a widow after being married a year. Her parents died when she was young. And my mother and my father are gonna see me die. And I'm gonna break all their hearts. And these are the people I least want to break, and it broke my heart to break theirs. And I'd wish that there was something I could do, some bargain I could make, or some work I could do, or some trade where 
that wouldn't happen. Like, if there's anything I could have done to stop this from happening, but there was nothing that I could do. And I remember coming back to church, talking to Pastor Ranke, telling him about this grief that I still had. I had this peace, but I had this grief. And Pastor Ranke pointed out Romans 8, 28. All things happen for the good of those who love God who are called according to his purpose. And he explained to me that if I die, even if I die, that God would take care of his children. My parents are Christians. My wife is a Christian. He would take care of them and provide for them so that they would even be better off. Even though I couldn't comprehend how, I didn't need to. I knew it was true, and that, took, that gave me that peace. And two days later, I was visiting with my parents. I was in their kitchen. I'm talking to my dad, and I'm explaining to him how it grieves me that, you know, I'm going to leave him and leave, leave my mom and leave my wife. And my dad looked at me, and he said, Mike, if you die from this, you will always be a part of me. Always. It was like he was giving me permission to die because he knew I was carrying that burden of something I couldn't fight against. And I knew what Romans 8.28 meant. In that moment, I knew what the gospel meant. I knew that even though I'm likely going to die and my parents are going to see that and my wife is going to see that, they're going to be okay. And we're all going to be together someday because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We all have eternal life. And they found a donor for me. One out of three million matched me. I had the bone marrow transplant. I didn't die from the transplant. That was 25, well, in April, it'll be 25 years. And one thing that I just want to leave everyone with is uh, obviously an absolute miracle in many ways, not just coming surviving cancer, but God seeing me as a lost sheep and saying, I'm not going to lose one of you. And I'm seeing the way that my life was going. He said, I'm not, I'm going to, I love you so much. I'm going to let you suffer through this so that you come back to me in full strength. And from that time, he's been strengthening me. Where I still stumble is there still are problems in life, right? Uh, they don't end. And what God continues to teach me is that when those troubles come, don't look to myself. Don't be independent. Look to God. Bring your problems to God. Tell him about your problems through prayer. And I think about Peter when Jesus was walking on the water and Peter says, he's got the bold faith, you know, you know, like where I was when I was sick. Bold faith, Jesus, whatever you want, you can do. And he says, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to walk on the water. And he does, and Peter walks on the water. And you would think, wow, if, you, if any of us walked in the water, would we ever doubt anything ever again? If we could go walk across a swimming pool because we asked Jesus to, to let us do that? You would think, no, we'll never doubt, we'll never have a problem, we'll never uh, have concerns, but... You know, we're human beings and we're tempted to, to have anxiety and fear. And Peter's walking, but as soon as he sees the wind and the waves, he focuses on the wind and the waves, even though Jesus is right there, and he sinks. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, Peter, I let you walk on the water. How could you doubt me? You know, sorry, you blew it. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus immediately reaches down, grabs him by the hand, and lifts him up. And he'll do it again and again and again. So for me, one of the lessons I've learned you know, that post this is that when that wave comes and when those waves come, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Remember what he's done for you in your life. He's going to do it again. He may deliver you in different ways, but he will never, ever leave you. 
And that's come true not only during my time with cancer, but in the 25 years since. So thank you all so much for this Amen. opportunity to share this story with you. Amen. Thank you so much, Mike. Do we have uh, someone in our uh, worship uh, area right now who might want to come forward and just have a prayer uh, over Mike and certainly give thanks for his story and his witness to Christ and God in it and drawing him closer in his love, even if it meant going through uh, what he thought was a death sentence and should have been. Anyone want to just come say a word of prayer over him? Thank you, Jonathan. God, we thank you so much for Mike and his family. We thank you that in the times where we think you're not around, maybe we are looking for you and we think there's no hope that you step in. Uh, we thank you that uh, like the father um, that we see so often in scripture that you see us from far off and you run to us. Father, thank you for what you did in Mike's life. Thank you for the constant uh, ways you provide for us and you take care of us in our lives. We just ask that you would continue to help us to keep our mind and our eyes focused on you in those hard times and also in the, the good times as well so that we don't forget all the things that you've done for us in the past. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Yes. Amen. Glory to God. A couple here in practice questions as we wrap up here our time this morning. One, how did you connect with their story? Think about what is one you heard, just one, and there are many there. What is one transformation that Jesus has already worked in your life? And then second, begin to think, who can you Share your story of his transformation in you with. Give that some thought and then we'll close with a blessing.